Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom podcast. Today, I want to share with you this latest in a series of podcasts in which I have been meandering around some backstories, connections, and suggestions related to the major issues of our times. So, let's begin. Today, in a market, a toddler near me, bright-eyed and exuberant, carefully watched over by his doting parents, is making noises, trying out various sounds, loud, soft, throaty, or shrill. He is babbling happily, his communication skills under development. His mother speaks to him softly in Spanish, her dark eyes gleaming with tenderness. His father, meanwhile, blonde and gruff, sounds as though he could be from somewhere in East Texas or maybe Tennessee. His particular variation of English language, sanded around the edges, slowed to a drawl by the summer heat endured by generations of his ancestors. This toddler is lucky. He is listening daily to two distinct languages. Which will he speak when his babbling eventually evolves itself into recognizable speech. Maybe he'll be fluent in both. Almost certainly he will not begin by speaking Russian or Turkish or French. His potential for language will get unpacked in a particular way due to his circumstances. Circumstances determine so much about how each of us becomes who we are. One researcher said recently that there is now almost universal agreement that folk concepts about what is innate in us is out of step with recent advances in biology and psychology. We are all learning more all the time about DNA, certainly, but also how malleable humans really are, regardless of DNA, how much we all can change depending on circumstances. I recently read that an increased genetic presence of the dopamine receptor known as D4 is correlated with restless behavior and novelty seeking. It seems some of us come in with lots of D4 and some don't. But restless behavior doesn't have to become problematic given the right circumstances. It can become an adventurous spirit, an inquisitive mind, an inventive and creative gift. So even though we all come in with a whole array of automatic, internal, biological, and psychological drives, instincts, archetypes, lots else, much of all that remains latent within us, ready to unfold when triggered, and is unpacked in us again depending on our circumstances, circumstances that contribute greatly to making us uniquely who we are. We all get unpacked and filtered through the sieves of the particular time and place into which we're born, the peculiarities and history of our particular family and culture, the opportunities or lack thereof available to us, and maybe some inexplicable quirkiness unique to us. 
to talk about all of this innateness and malleability can get downright opinionated or absolutely scientific. Psychologists everywhere make a living trying to help us make sense of it, and lately even legal systems have gotten tangled up in making decisions about it. I read recently that certain Native American people say that when a child is born, the child is at first uncooked, (laughs) coming into this world still open to everything. Only as time passes, they say, does a person become cooked, solidified, this and not that. Life mixes us in this way or that way to give each of us a certain flavor and form. Maybe in one person's particular cooking, they become tough or brittle or bitter. But over time, with new circumstances and continued cooking, even the toughest may soften become more tender. Again, it depends on circumstances. Any good cook will tell you that flour, egg, sugar, milk, butter, mix them this way or that way, give them the conditions of this much or that much heat in this or that container for this or that amount of time at this or that elevation, and you can end up with a whole variety of things. You may like some of them, some you won't. Likewise, we humans are all cooked in certain distinct ways by certain combinations of ingredients and seasonings and conditions with varying results. I hear people use a shorthand phrase these days, oh, they're on the spectrum. Well, we're all on the spectrum, the human spectrum. As the Sufi tradition is wont to say, there are a thousand ways to touch the ground. There are thousands of ways of being. Humanity is as variable as flowers. One of us like a standing sunflower turned boldly toward the sun. Another of us a shrinking violet nestled in a spot of shade, almost invisible among the scatter of pine straw. Knowing all this, one might expect that we all could be more tolerant of each other. My friend has a bumper sticker that reads, Humankind, be both. Be human, be kind. But, as you may have noticed, it's not always easy being kind. We may want to act a certain way toward others, but inevitably we also react, usually automatically and often unconsciously, to the actions of those around us, especially those who got (laughs) cooked in ways we don't agree with or disapprove of. We are, after all, hardwired to make judgments, even snap judgments of others, a survival skill hundreds of thousands of years old, we do automatically react to other people and to circumstances. Throughout human history, it's been necessary and essential that humans be able to decide quickly, for example, whether a large animal or an unfamiliar person might be dangerous. So still, we all react according to our immediate judgment based on our own instincts and our own history and the circumstances we now embody, and based on how any other animal or person behaves, we react. So, 
How can we be expected just to be kind when we encounter something or someone who presents a serious threat, real or imagined, to us and to all we hold dear? Our knee-jerk reactions unexamined about increasingly critical issues that are, in fact, life-threatening, these contribute greatly to the divisiveness and polarity we now find ourselves in in this culture. I saw a meme online the other day that said, Mr. Rogers didn't adequately prepare me to deal with my neighborhood. (laughs) What can prepare us to act kindly and neighborly toward individuals who are difficult to be with, clearly narrow-minded, hostile, vile, even violent in their behaviors? What are we to make of murderers, rapists, racists, or the more subtle swindlers and manipulators? What are we to make of liars or egocentric narcissists who stop at nothing to enhance their own position in life? That's not a new question, of course. For thousands of years, people have asked, how could people have crucified Jesus, killed Socrates, committed genocide, and what about slavery, ancient and modern? Sometimes in frustration or desperation, we may ask whether people like that can change, whether our society can change for the better. Is redemption or reform in our culture really possible? Can we heal the polarity, the divisiveness? Is there hope of undoing the harm, the hurt, the brokenness we see around us? Some of the oldest stories in human history speak to these questions. One of them comes from Egypt, dating from around 5,000 years ago. We read in the transcriptions of ancient mythical text that Osiris ruled Egypt, having inherited the kingship from his ancestors in a lineage stretching back to the creator of the world. Osiris was believed to be connected with life-giving power. He was said to have had a righteous kingship based on the rule of what the Egyptians called Mayat. Mayat was defined in ancient Egypt as ideal cosmic right order. Mayat's right order, they said, was based on truth, balance, and a sense of equity so carefully administered that the weight of a feather would tip the scales of justice. This right order and its ongoing maintenance was a fundamental aspect of Osiris' golden reign. However, Set, Osiris' brother, who in the myth is closely associated with violence and chaos, tricked, betrayed, trapped, and murdered Osiris to take over rulership for himself. The slaying of Osiris in this mythic story on one level symbolizes the ongoing struggle between order and disorder, between chaos and peaceful relationships. The periodic disorder and social anarchy that resulted from violations of Mayat actually played out in ancient Egypt's history. Why was it, though, in the myth, that Seth brought chaos and disorder, and how did he overcome his brother 
Osiris in undue right order. Some versions of the myth give us Set's motive. According to the pyramid texts, Set was taking revenge for a kick Osiris gave him early in life. Or in a late period text, Set's grievance is that Osiris had sex with Set's consort. Both of those actions of Osiris's would have been actions, small and large, against right order, opening the doorway to Set's ever-ready disorder and chaos and the dismantling of Egyptian high culture. If Osiris had been more attentive to Mayat, would the story have been different? We aren't told that, only that Osiris was defeated by Set. Osiris' body was torn asunder, dismembered, bits of him scattered. Tribalism, sectarianism, religious rivalry all ensued. The texts tell us exactly how Mayat, right order, is undone. Three main concepts of Mayat are neglected. One, people stop listening to each other. The text, The Dialogue of the Desperate Man and His Soul, a classic text of the Middle Kingdom, says that the deaf, those who do not listen to others, are insensible, indifferent, so that the one not heard has no friend and so is not integrated into society. The text says that when there is no communication anymore at the level of the individual or society, violence and the law of the strongest then appears. 2. Mayat, right order, can be undone when greed is increased. The texts say that selfishness, the desire for possessions, and jealousy bring about the destruction of social relations. Interestingly, the texts spell out that during a lifetime, a person accumulates a a subtle energy from the joy of living. A person who cannot be happy with the goodness in his life, one who is greedy, will cause harm. The texts indicate that the one who despoils those who work for him and removes from them their means of subsistence or puts them in peril is an inducer of violence. 3. Mayat can be overcome when inertia prevails. The absence of action in maintaining Mayat right order results in an inevitable increase in chaos and disorder. Lethargy and inaction in the face of wrongdoing is not right order, the texts say. In addition to these three general principles in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, we find a whole list of other things that go against Mayat, including, interestingly, quote, making any to weep, along with acting with arrogance, stirring up strife, causing violence, committing theft, murder, deceit, or slander, being angry without just cause, quote, shutting one's ears to the words of truth, and more. 
So these ancient texts give us reasons why in the myth Set with his chaos and anarchy, was able to take over rulership for a time. Set believed that his splitting up of Osiris and the unraveling of Mayat would allow him to reign supreme forever. However, in the myth, Isis, who was Osiris and Set's sister after Osiris's dismemberment, traveled the world over gathering up the parts of Osiris's broken body, and she was able to reassemble Osiris in a new form. Osiris became then the guide of all souls through the darkness and uncertainty of their time in the underworld, both during life and after death. Osiris was then said to be the bringer of resurrected, transformed life to all who followed Mayat. And further, in the myth, Isis gave birth to a son, Horus, who, while growing up following Mayat, right order, eventually went before the supreme judges to claim, legally, his legitimate right to the throne instead of Set, who had usurped it. The judges ruled in favor of Horus, and after a prolonged struggle between Horus and Set, Horus and right order ultimately won. Significantly, however, Set is not destroyed. His archetypal nature will always be part of reality. So in most versions of the Osiris myth, the just judges allow Set to occupy a distinctive role in Horus's reign, and it's a balancing role that is uniquely suited to his talents as a mighty warrior and a sort of trickster who can outsmart the unwise. The maintenance of Mayat requires ongoing vigilance, awareness of Set always there in the picture, then and now. This myth is instructive for us today, both in how we got where we are and in how now we are called upon to perform the functions of, of Isis, gathering up the shattered bits of our fractured culture, realizing that there are ways that social right order has been violated through the centuries, and taking proper steps to restore or establish right order, reforming ourselves and our culture to bring about circumstances that foster a society in right order. Now, some may say, oh, you, you can't bring such Pollyanna logic, especially mythic logic, to bear on irrational behaviors, our own or anyone else's, that we're dealing with today. Your set is too strong. Perhaps for many of us, exhausted as we are by the how the things are now, our gut instinct is just to fight back in whatever way on whatever side of whatever divide we may be on. And certainly we have a right to fight back against the horrific wrongs humans are capable of. Self-preservation, personal and cultural, is an instinct that usually serves us well. Isis' son Horus in the myth fought back and won against Set and the chaos he engendered. But my question always comes back to how how do we fight back? What will work and what will be counterproductive? 
I'm reminded of the biblical story of Jesus and Judas. Judas had spent his life fighting for what was certainly right, fighting for freedom for his people from the oppressive yoke of Roman rule. He was a patriot of his people. Judas followed Jesus around because he could see that Jesus was doing good things for people and Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, which was an ancient Hebrew construct for the kingdom of Israel, different from the kingdom of Rome. But when Jesus began to say that the kingdom of God is within you, and when Jesus refused to lead the Jewish people into violence by overtly fighting the Romans, Judas decided to push Jesus and Jesus' followers in ways that Judas thought would work to force Jesus' hand to do something, anything, to get Jesus and his followers to take extraordinary and even violent action against Rome. Only in retrospect did Judas see the tragic results of his version of fighting back, possessed as he was by his righteous certainty about what should be done at whatever cost. Jesus was killed, but Rome was not defeated. Judas' way was not skillful means, not a successful fighting back, even if his intention was righteous. Does any of this sound familiar today on any side of whatever discussion, politics, racial conflict, matters of climate, the economy, personal freedom, the right to choose one's lifestyle, whatever? So if not by violence, how do we fight back against tyranny? If not by adopting the same or similar destructive, vindictive attitudes and behaviors, or by countering and judging and reacting automatically out of our own bias and preconditioning against those of another person's? Is there another way to reframe our responses? Even discussing this isn't easy. <laughs> we get sabotaged by reactions from our emotional bodies because our emotional bodies hold those deeply ingrained and powerful patterns of inherited family, social, and archetypal automatic reactions I mentioned. Patterns of thought and behavior, usually unconscious. Patterns that have been handed down through generations, repeated over and over through centuries, so that they hold enormous energy. We like to imagine in this culture that we are all individuals in charge of ourselves and our own lives and in charge of our own behaviors and decisions, but the truth is that we're all, each of us, we all have all these inner unconscious drives that propel us and given certain triggers move us toward particular ways of being, ways of thinking or acting. How then are we to deal with such ancient, inherited, or acquired complexes of energy when they're so destructive to ourselves, to others, to our human family in general, to the earth, to the world at large? How, in relation to the issues of our time, are we to change tribal polarities or racial divides? How are we to respond to threats of violence, to death threats to public officials, 
to assassinations of persons or assassinations of character. It's foolhardy to believe that a self-righteous or naive insistence that the other person, whoever the other is, may just wake up and become enlightened and do right, if we all just insist kindly or demand with weapons in hand. Instead, I think we have to realize that from the nation's capital to the least represented pockets of poverty, from the underpaid worker to the rich entrepreneur, from the north to the south, from the metropolitan to the rural areas, from the highly educated to the least educated, from the left to the right, wherever we look, the issue is really the same. If at root, as may be, we all came in uncooked, if we all came in as innocent little human beings, we were all nonetheless formed largely by the differing circumstances that brought each of us to the oppositional places where we are today. And where we are is a place that feels to everyone, it seems, unfair, inequitable, even unjust. Surely the idea of equity referred to in Egypt's Mayat, among other, all the other things, is something we need to explore with open minds and hearts. We have long had laws proclaiming equality under the law, but we have never in this country had equity. Most of us believe in the idea of equality, legally at least, meaning that each individual or group of people be given the same freedom or justice under the law. Equity, on the other hand, has a moral component, the recognizing that each person or group has been and still is subject to different circumstances. And so to reach equity, consideration must be given to ways that resources and opportunities be allocated to maintain justice and establish right order. Splits between the entitled and the underprivileged throughout history lead eventually and inevitably to conflict. We have a long way to go in resolving questions of equity and equality, but openly and honestly acknowledging and responding to these issues is one of the ways we could move toward correcting dangerous imbalances. And corrective resources are available both external and internal if there are complexes of energy within us for warlike division, disorder, and disharmony, there are also archetypal energies available within us for compassion, reconciliation, unification, sharing, creative problem-solving, and so forth. Those, too, have been patterns of human behavior that have been passed down through generations, ingrained in us as possibilities, there are heroic archetypes, archetypes of wisdom and strategy, archetypes of compassion, archetypes to mediate conflicts, and archetypes to usher lost souls like some of us through the dark underworld and back out into the sunlight of a new life, a new world. Hopeful archetypes do exist in mythic stories the world over and in potential in us too. And the ancient stories tell us clearly exactly how we got where we are, what is at stake, and what we must do. 
The Mesoamerican myth of Quetzalcoatl, for example, is instructive. Like Osiris, Quetzalcoatl is described as an enlightened ruler or deity. In Mayan, his name implies benevolent balance. Quetzalcoatl, it was said by the Toltec, brought well-being to the people for a long time. He brought learning, science, agriculture, crafts, and arts to the people. Over time, though, the culture and the society changed, and Quetzalcoatl became particularly venerated by those religious schools annexed to the temples, in which the future priests and the sons of the nobility, the elite, were educated. Inequity and disparities arose, so that by Aztec times, there was a revolution against those very elite priests. But as is so often the case within a revolt, the result was such chaos that a military ruling class seized power. The violent era of Aztec history, with its practice even of human sacrifice, ensued. This myth of Quetzalcoatl, incidentally, tells us that the leader of the revolt and the ruler of the new despotic regime was Quetzalcoatl's twin brother, Tezcatlipoca, who, it seems, saw a darker side to his enlightened brother. Tezcatlipoca held up before Quetzalcoatl a smoky mirror that reflected back to Quetzalcoatl how Quetzalcoatl looked from his brother's perspective. It is said that there were things Quetzalcoatl had done, after all, that were not all that just and moral or perfect, and Quetzalcoatl saw it in Tezcatlipoca's mirror. Or, it's also said, that what Quetzalcoatl saw was the ever-present darkness, always latent in reality itself. Looking in that mirror, though, recognizing that side of himself or that part of reality wasn't easy for Quetzalcoatl. It wasn't pretty. It might not have even been a fair representation of what Quetzalcoatl was or had done. The myth doesn't make that clear. He may have been completely innocent, or he was just naive about the necessity of continuing to work to maintain good and fair and just social order. He should have paid more attention, perhaps, realizing that Tezcatlipoca, who in the myth was, after all, the ruler of darkness, was often said to perform feats of black magic. Tezcatlipoca's view of things, however much he believed it, might not have been the clearest. He did offer a smoky mirror, a mirror that showed distorted images, perhaps, of how things really were. But, Quetzalcoatl looked, and somehow he saw his own shadowed side and the shadowed side of what his culture had become. And the myth goes on to speak of his sacrifice. Significantly, unlike the Egyptian myth where Osiris is killed by others, or Jesus' story in which Jesus is crucified by others, Quetzalcoatl's story is of self-sacrifice. What do we make of that? How willing are any of us for certain kinds of self-sacrifice? How willing are we to sacrifice, for example, our own sense of superiority 
our own entitlement, our own self-righteousness to bring about right order in our own lives and in relationships and in the culture. Can we, will we, sacrifice our own more or less perfect self-image by looking in the smoky mirror at the way others see us, even if we think we have done nothing wrong? Quetzalcoatl's mythology was and still is spiritually instructive. Images of him appear in monumental form all over Mesoamerica as a winged Quetzal bird with a snake in its mouth. He is called the winged serpent. He thus carries both the realities of the upper world and underworld, dark and light, day and night. He reminds us that the snake can be dealt with but it is a reality. The poison from the sting of the serpent is always a possibility when there is carelessness. Neglect of the maintenance of right order, of fairness, of equity, in any culture, these open the doorway for the black magic of Tezcatlipoca's usurpation of power. Quetzalcoatl's myth is an important reminder of what is at stake today. The actual history of Aztec human sacrifice, in which individual victims were slain in the very temples, their bloody hearts torn out and raised up to a ruling god that encouraged and indeed demanded such atrocities. This was an acting out on a literal level of what Quetzalcoatl, by contrast, was able to perform as a self-sacrifice the sacrifice, the giving up of all that was destructive to right order and justice. Is it possible that something similar is happening in our culture today? The increased acting out of violence, abhorrent violence, immoral and illegal violence, these perhaps are unconscious outward manifestations, outcomes of the result of our culture's long refusal fully to come to terms with its own shadowed history? Perhaps. But what are we then to do? One thing I feel sure about inviting Tezcatlipoca's disorder and despotic rule is not the answer. The answer is not certainly the overthrow of our constitutional government, for example however imperfectly we have lived up to its stated objectives. There are those who call for that, who advocate and commit violence against established traditions and procedures set in place to defend our freedoms and to make possible peaceful change. Many changes are needed and are possible, but violent revolt inevitably results in more chaos and violence in dictatorships and injustice and authoritarian rule, as history repeatedly tells us. Let us bring about a more peaceful revolution of consciousness in our culture. Let us remember what the concept of mayat teaches us, that greed, arrogance, deceit, slander, stirring up strife, causing violence, being angry without just cause, and shutting one's ears to the words of truth, can destroy a peaceful society by destroying right order. We humans have long agreed 
that right order depends upon just and equitable laws, laws that establish and maintain right order, laws that are enforced equally and equitably. From the very earliest human records in Samaria and Acadia, we find such traditions that were later codified into a series of laws by Babylon's king Hammurabi. One of the many stone pillars set up in ancient Babylon proclaiming those laws was recovered in our own time, and the, and the text on the pillar states that the Babylonian king Hammurabi had been granted his rule by the gods for the purpose, and I quote from the stone pillar itself, for the purpose to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak, and states that laws were the way to achieve this. And ever since Hammurabi's down to the present day, people have seen the need for just and equitable laws to maintain orderly and peaceful societies to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak. Today we are called upon to support this fundamental notion as it's being challenged today. Our constitutional government in all its many manifestations is at stake. I think we must all do our part in good order ourselves to uphold Mayat. The fight for the good in all its complexity may best begin at home, of course, in recognizing our own bias from our own peculiar mix of inherited or acquired complexes, in acknowledging and taking into account the complexity of how we all got where we are, in beginning to reconcile our own certain views of what is right with those of others who are also certain that they are in the right, and then being able to imagine new ways to change the various inequitable circumstances in our culture that have set brother against brother, tribe against tribe, starting with simply listening to each other peacefully, in a true dialogue that works toward resolution in newer, better points of view that can be agreed upon and held by all. In other words, can we let the turbulent energy built up amongst us shift focus from violence and vengeance toward creative, imaginative, new conditions for the common good? Perhaps we can, as Lincoln said, bind up our wounds, committing ourselves, and this time staying committed to the development of a new and better way of being for everyone. I'm placing my hopes on that, hoping that all and each of us will do our part in making our world a better place in this most trying time. I have to stop this podcast somewhere, and I think this is it. So, until next time, this is Glenda Taylor and the One and All Wisdom podcast. Join me again here on the podcast, and join me on the One and All Wisdom website, where you will find many other things that relate to what we're talking about here, and some things that perhaps are in completely different categories. But until next time, 
This is Glenda Taylor. Thank you for listening. Thank you.